For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org. Jim, thank you for that extremely warm and gracious introduction. <clears throat> it's uh, the view doesn't get any. All right, the view doesn't get any better uh, than uh, from here uh, with you uh, in this wonderful room and this uh, very large uh, audience. I really thank you for that. I do have to begin by <laughs> apologizing for my footwear. Um, I. Um, it, our weather's been a little worse than yours, and uh, it's been raining and uh, kind of muddy out on the uh, pastoral Stanford lands. And I dug out my desert boots from uh, Iraq uh, and have been wearing them recently. Uh, and I came home from a very busy day of teaching, advising students, uh, and so on at Stanford, dropped one set of uh, bags and clothes got another, and left for the airport, and <laughs> I was just about at the San Francisco airport when I realized that uh, I still had my uh, Iraq desert boots. Now, this is, uh, <clears throat> this is basically how we dressed in Baghdad. In fact, uh, Ambassador Bremer popularized the concept of the suit and the desert boots, so uh, in that sense, I stand in solidarity with him. <laughs> Let me... Um, <clears throat> Let me say as well, uh, it is, of course, an accident of timing that I, I speak to you um, about, uh, what, two months after Ambassador Bremer was with you. It's not, ironically enough, it's not the first time uh, that um, this has happened, as I've spoken to a World Affairs Council. It's not my job to be a truth squad, uh, sort of um, correcting the record here. Um, I'll just give you my own views. Uh, I will preface them by saying two things. Number one, uh, I had um, some serious disagreements with Ambassador Bremer and a lot of things that I agreed with as well. <clears throat> They're detailed in my book, and you can read them and evaluate them. Uh, number two, it looks like he had some serious disagreements uh, with the administration. Uh, I didn't know about them at the time, and indeed, when I, in my final interview with uh, Ambassador Bremer, uh, before I left Baghdad, and I wasn't even aware when I was leaving for sure that I wasn't coming back, uh, I told him that we needed more troops. We needed a lot more troops. The situation was falling apart. Uh, and I recount that final conversation I had with him uh, in my book. And I can tell you um, that he told me there weren't any more troops that in fact we were so tapped out in terms of troops that when I told him there was an outpost, an American mission uh, outside Baghdad that I was frankly afraid was going to be overrun uh, by the insurgency or that um, their convoys were at very grave risk of being attacked uh, and that they wanted two Humvees and 20 Marines, he said there weren't even that. Um, now, uh, this was a very deeply frustrated man by that point. Uh, that I was uh, familiar with. The other thing I want to say is that whatever disagreements I had with him uh, and with a number of my colleagues there, uh, I did have enormous respect for his physical courage, his dedication to the cause and to our country, uh, and his vision 
of an Iraq that would be, and he used these words repeatedly, unified, democratic, and federal. Uh, and my view was at the time and has remained since that it is only this kind of combination of <laughs> unity and federalism, of openness and power sharing with security uh, that's going to hold Iraq back uh, from the abyss. Uh, and unfortunately now this leads to what I have to say to you today. Uh, unfortunately the situation is, I think, headed toward the abyss. We are in the midst of a civil war in Iraq. Okay, let me make that clear. We are in a civil war in Iraq. Uh, political scientists define a civil war as an internal conflict with at least a thousand dead and at least a hundred on each side in which one or the other side is struggling to change the nature of the state or some significant policies of the state. Now, that, by that definition, which I realize is a, not a very demanding definition, uh, and unfortunately there are dozens of countries that satisfy it in the last 20 to 30 years, by that definition, Iraq has been in a civil war for the last two years or more. 500 Iraqis, at a minimum, 500 Iraqis have been dying a month in this internal conflict uh, almost since the time that Baghdad fell in March of 2003. Uh, with the recent bombing on February 22nd of this very precious, sacred Oscaria Mosque in Samarra, which you've read about and you know how deeply symbolic this was to the Shia of Iraq. Uh, how much this almost triggered a larger full-scale sectarian civil war in Iraq. Uh, with that bombing and the subsequent uh, extensive retaliatory violence by Shia death squads, violence that's been ramping up for some time, we've really been brought to the abyss. And the abyss is not civil war in the technical sense. It's civil war in the colloquial sense we understand it not with five, six, eight, nine thousand dead a year, but uh, with deaths in the thousands per month, uh, as Tom Friedman wrote about in terms of his understanding, based on deep knowledge of the region, uh, of what could happen if Iraq fell apart, Lebanon on steroids. Uh, that is, Lebanon of the Civil War era of the 1980s uh, made much worse by the scale of Iraq uh, and by the degree of external intervention and by, if I may say so, a three-letter word that is not unfamiliar in these parts, oil. Now, um, let me assess for you uh, in a little more detail uh, the current situation there, what I see as um, the near-term prospects, what to look out for. Then I'll reflect back on how we got to this situation uh, and then I'll give you my own views on whether there's anything that can be done to stabilize Iraq. Uh, and since I won't have the time, obviously, to go into this in great detail, the history is there in my book, uh, my own experiences, our experiences uh, in post-war Iraq uh, through the time of the American political occupation. The current analysis I'm going to share with you, you can find in a magazine called The New Republic. Uh, it's the lead article in this week's New Republic. 
pondering the question of whether there is a civil war in Iraq, how we can recognize it, and what we would look for uh, if we wanted to determine whether Iraq is sliding into a deeper scale conflict. One of the things you look for is political polarization, uh, where the parties are deeply divided, moving on separate paths. There are no cross-cutting cleavages. Everybody uh, identifies uh, strictly uh, in one camp or another. Now, let me say, people talk uh, about the polarization in the United States, you know, the red state, blue state problem. Uh, this is trivial compared to what Iraq is dealing with today, where um, almost everybody who voted in the January 2005 elections and even more in the December 15, 2005 elections uh, for the parliament that was elected recently under the permanent constitution voted on the basis of an ethnic identity. I think almost every single Kurd voted for the Kurdistan alliance that rules in Kurdistan of the two major parties or for one of the smaller ethnic parties, particularly the Kurdistan Islamic Union. Uh, I guess that there probably weren't more than two or three percent of Kurds who voted for any other party. Uh, most of the Sunnis boycotted the January election and then voted in December for one, or one of two Sunni political coalitions. One Islamist, which got most of the, about 80% of the Sunni vote probably, and the other um, uh, secular, which got most of the rest. Then you have the Shia, 60% of the population in Iraq, and about three-quarters of the Shia voted for the United Iraqi Alliance, the coalition of Shia religious parties that is the lead coalition in Iraq and is struggling to lead the formation of the new government. We had a hope that um, the man we had chosen as interim prime minister, Ayad Alawi, who had tried to craft, craft an appeal across religious lines, across ethnic lines, to Iraqi national identity and who had brought in a lot of the liberal, secular, and frankly democratic uh, political and civic forces in Iraq to his coalition in December, we had a hope that he would do well, do even better than uh, the 13% of the vote that he won in January, that somehow he might get enough seats, not a majority, but maybe 20, 25% of the seats in parliament to be able to lead the formation of a new government and pull this country away from the path of ethnic and sectarian polarization of politics. Alawi was not short of money. I don't know where it came from. I have my theories. But he had plenty of money for mass media. He had an appealing campaign in many ways. He was no longer burdened with having to be the interim prime minister and be responsible for all the miserable failures of governance, the lack of electricity, the lack of sewage, the lack of water, the lack of security. He was able to run as an outsider, criticizing the feckless and corrupt governance uh, under the United Iraqi Alliance Prime Minister, Ibrahim Jafari, in the preceding eight months, uh, and to talk about the need for reconciliation uh, and effective governance 
and a real effort to crack down on the problems of insecurity that was plaguing the country. With all of that, Alawi did worse in December than he did in January. He got 8% of the vote. He has 25 of the 270 seats in Parliament. And let me tell you, of the remaining 250 seats in Parliament, I estimate that no more than two are held by other political parties that are not mainly ethnic or sectarian in their identification. This is a deeply polarized country. Secondly, it is a country, in essence, without a state. Um, and one of the problems you find as uh, countries slide toward all-out civil war is that the center does not hold because there is no center. There is no structure of governance and authority and force on the ground that all people recognize the legitimacy of and commit to. The state either collapses altogether or pieces of it are taken over by different factions that owe their loyalty to their party or ethnic group and not to the concept of a national state. And one of the things that our ambassador in Iraq now, Zalmay Khalilzad, an enormously able man who was um, heavily responsible for the much greater degree of success we had in Afghanistan than what we've had in post-war Iraq, innovative, pragmatic, principled, uh, tireless, as Bremer was tireless, uh, has been working very hard to try and reverse the conquest and penetration of the various strategic elements of the Iraqi state by these sectarian, ethnic, uh, and politicized forces in Iraq. And of course, in a situation like this, where you're trying to hold a country together and prevent a slide to civil war, nothing is more important than the army and the police. We've done a not-so-bad job in the last year of building up the Iraqi army and making it a national army. We have a lot further to go. There's a deeply sobering assessment of this by James Fallows in the December Atlantic Monthly called Why Iraq Has No Army that I highly recommend to you. But compared to what's happened with the police, we've made progress in building up an Iraqi army that has some degree of commitment to the larger state some degree of transcendence of ethnic and sectarian divisions, some degree of uh, national purpose. Not so with the police. The cutting edge of the United Iraqi Alliance is a political party um, I respect for one reason, and that is they have had the transparency to give you their platform in their name. It's called the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq. This party uh, grew up, uh, gained its training, got training uh, and resources, arms, and military uh, strategy for its militia, the Badr organization, during 20 years of exile in Iran. The Badr organization, which is uh, the second largest and in many ways most fearsome militia in Iraq, was trained by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, just so you know where they're coming from. Uh, and the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, SCIRI, set as its strategic goal uh, when the um, 
transitional government was being formed under Ibrahim Jaffrey, not so much getting the prime ministership. They wanted the Ministry of Interior. And they wanted the Ministry of Interior because the Ministry of Interior controls the police. And as a result of um, controlling the Ministry of Interior, they have stacked the police throughout much of Iraq with Badr organization and other Shiite militia elements who have been operating death squads against uh, their presumed enemies and particularly anybody in the Sunni community who they think may have any ties to the insurgency. Now, we need a vigorous Iraqi-led uh, effort against the insurgency. Uh, but there are two ways of doing it. One is with the kind of professional, uh, deeply experienced and strategized counterinsurgency efforts that ultimately win after a long period of time, which we've been gradually moving toward after many false starts in Iraq. And the other is with uh, vengeful, vigilante justice dealt out in brutal ethnic and sectarian terms and that's what the Badr organization is delivering. Khalilzad is now waging a noble, valiant, and difficult struggle to lay down a clear marker uh, in Iraq that the defense ministry and the interior ministry in the new government that's being formed, uh, painfully struggling to be formed as a result of the December 15th elections, cannot be penetrated and controlled by the militias again. If it is, uh, I think there's probably no stopping the slide to all-out civil war because uh, the police and the internal security commandos will be taken over by these sectarian elements completely uh, and they will wage war on their enemies. Uh, the effort to protect individual rights will probably be overwhelmed the effort to foster ethnic reconciliation will be overwhelmed uh, and the Sunnis will not only continue to condone the insurgent violence that has brought the country to such a state of insecurity, but will form overt militia squads of their own to protect themselves. Uh, and once you have the descent into militia uh, security action, as the primary uh, security action in the country, militia violence and warlordism, you basically have Lebanon in the 1980s. And again, I repeat, this time, uh, Lebanon redoubled Lebanon on steroids. Now, let me say the other element of the crisis we face in Iraq now uh, is political, not only in terms of government formation, in terms of getting a broad, inclusive government that all Iraqis can feel a part of, but in terms of the constitutional bargain. We worked very hard on this. I actually was involved in drafting the interim constitution uh, that was adopted in March of 2004. So I'm keenly sensitive to, I feel a kind of gut identification with the constitutional debates that raged in Iraq in the summer of last year as they were struggling to finish by the artificial deadline of August 15th, a deadline that could have been postponed, should have been postponed, but the postponement of which was vetoed, I must tell you as a matter of fact, by the Bush administration. 
because of the concern to keep the process forward, not have any delays, continue to show that Iraq is, quote, on track. As a result of that <coughs> action, premature uh, and forced, Iraq was uh, left with a constitution that has what we call in political science and the language of institutional analysis, severe birth defects. Um, <laughs> problems of design uh, that will make this child unable to walk and unable to live very long unless they're corrected through surgery. Uh, and the essential problem, it's obviously more elaborate, but I want to be brief here, uh, is that Iraq has agreed that it has to have a federal system of government. That's a very positive thing. Ambassador Bremer worked very hard to convince Iraqis of the need for that. Unified, federal, democratic. That was the bargain. But federalism has to be a balanced federalism between the center and the provinces. Federalism has to involve fairness in the distribution of resources. Federalism has to give every major group in the country Kurdish, Shia, Sunni, and other smaller minorities, a stake in the system, a feeling of belonging, a fair share of the oil resources. The way we hit on that in the interim constitution, which I thought was a viable and sustainable bargain, was to say, as in the United States, as in most democracies, federalism has to be based on geographic units, not on ethnic units. Uh, however, we face the practical problem that the Kurds, after having been pummeled, oppressed, uh, victimized with virtually genocidal violence by uh, Arab uh, leaders of Iraq previously and by other regimes in the region, the Kurds being the largest stateless people in the world with some 20 million people spread across several borders of the region, Iraq, uh, Syria, Turkey, Iran, uh, would not settle for just being another three provinces in Iraq. They had been a region with substantial autonomous power since the end of the first Gulf War in 1991. They weren't going to go back to something substantially less. So we settled on a bargain that in political science we call asymmetrical federalism. There's 18 provinces based on geography. They all have the same powers, rights, and responsibilities, and pretty substantial. The ability to move in the direction of American federalism, which has, I think, been a grand and largely successful experiment. They could evolve in time as they got more capacity to govern at the uh, provincial level. They could take more responsibility over education, more responsibility for taxation, more responsibility for health and welfare, and so on. But there would be one unit that would have a special and larger status, and that would be the existing Kurdistan region. Now, that was a viable bargain to which was attached the provision that there would be a fair sharing of the oil and gas wealth of the country, which is virtually the entire you know, gross national income of the country, uh, certainly the overwhelming bulk of uh, government revenue in Iraq, a fair sharing mainly uh, based on the proportion of the population. And so oil revenue would be a national resource and would be assigned in part to the provinces based on their share of the population. 
We fast forward now to the negotiations over the permanent constitution. And as the deadline is approaching and the bargaining power of the largest actor, the United Iraqi Alliance, and its most important player, the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, accelerates as the deadline approaches. The Shiite cleric, Mullah, who runs the Supreme Council, Abdulaziz al-Hakim, taking a cue from an ally of the United States over the years who had floated this idea himself, a man whose name will be familiar to you, Ahmed Chalabi, comes forward and proposes uh, a new idea about Iraqi federalism, that all of the Shiite provinces of the south, nine provinces, the entire southern half of the country, should be allowed to congeal into one region with all of the power and resources and rights of Kurdistan. Uh, and it's late in the game. The United States is demanding that the negotiations be concluded. People are tired. Um, uh, Skiri can block any constitutional bargain. So um, with the Sunnis who had been brought into the constitutional negotiations by Ambassador Khalilzad out of the room uh, because they would never have accepted this, uh, the Kurds and the Shia cut this reluctant bargain uh, to provide just for that, that as many provinces as wish to, uh, and so, if you will, nine southern Shiite provinces can form a region with all the powers and rights of Kurdistan. To this was attached another little uh, subtle change in the interim constitution. Now, yes, oil would be oil and gas, a, a national resource, and the federal government would have control uh, over policy regarding uh, oil and gas fields. But a little word was inserted before oil and gas fields, and the word was existing. And when you qualify uh, that authority with the word existing, it implies anyway that if there are any new oil and gas fields that come on stream, and they're enormous in their potential. Simply enormous. This is part of the tragedy of Iraq, is how much untapped wealth that we certainly need in the world today with the price of oil skyrocketing up is sitting under that sand waiting to be uh, produced. Uh, this new oil and gas wealth would then implicitly be uh, the province for management uh, by the regional government. And so you've got the Sunnis looking at a situation where there's one huge region to the north, Kurdistan, that's about to absorb 20% uh, of the oil and gas wealth of the country that lies just below it in the strategic province of Kirkuk, from which they were expelled in a campaign of ethnic cleansing by Saddam and the Ba'ath Party in the 1970s and 80s, and so have been engaged in a campaign of reverse ethnic cleansing since uh, Saddam fell in 2003 in order to prepare to get it back. And then the other 80% of the oil and gas wealth of the country will be controlled by another huge region to the south, Shiistan, leaving the Sunnis in the middle with desert. Now, I can tell you they will never accept this. First of all, 
I don't think this is viable from the standpoint of political science and constitutional design. I think it's a formula for uh, civil war. It's a formula for uh, the other subtext of what's going on here that I repeat the name one last time just so you don't ever forget it. The Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq actually would like a Islamic revolution in Iraq. And their goal is to create an Islamic state in Iraq, uh, loosely uh, having many of the features of the Iranian Islamic Republic. Now, they know they can't do that in all of Iraq. They're not going to be a political majority. And not all of the 60% Shias of the country want it. In fact, I'm not even sure if a majority of the Shia want it. But they can do it in Shiistan because they will have overwhelming control of that province. So if this provision is not reversed, what we're looking at in Iraq down the road, a year, six months, two years, I don't know how long, is the country falling into all-out civil war, uh, heavily um, uh, driven not just by all of the decentralized violence uh, and desecration of mosques and massacres and terrorism that's going on, but by this struggle over what Iraq is going to be and who's going to control the oil and gas wealth of this country. Uh, now, Ambassador Khalilzad managed four days before the Iraqi constitutional referendum on October 15th to negotiate a compromise agreement that included the largest Sunni party, the Iraqi Islamic Party, providing for a constitutional review commission to meet once the parliament assembled, to be appointed by parliament, to meet and to have four months to propose revisions of the constitution that was about to hopefully be adopted on October 15th and that indeed was adopted. So now at least there is a mechanism, the constitutional review commission, that will begin meeting at some point in the next few weeks uh, to revise this unwieldy, uh, unsustainable constitutional bargain on this and perhaps other dimensions. Uh, and, the, you know, it's possible to get constitutional changes here, but not without, one last time, the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq agreeing to it. I... Um, feel for Ambassador Khalilzad. I think he's got the second most difficult job in the world right now. And um, uh, he's struggling against a uh, very, very difficult tie. What's the first? Obviously, the President of the United States. Uh, that always comes first on my list. Um, it used to be said that the mayor of New York had the second most difficult job in the world. Now I think it's the American ambassador to Baghdad. Um, let me say a few words about how we got here, just kind of bullet points, and then what we need to do, and then I'll conclude at 1.10, which is only four minutes from now. Um, we just made a lot of mistakes. They're summarized in my book. Um, we went in utterly unprepared for this with too few troops, let the situation spin out of control. I profoundly disagree with what Ambassador Bremer uh, said here. I think it was a huge mistake to simply dissolve the Iraqi army. They could have been called back. They had dispersed themselves, true, 
They could have been called back to stabilize the country. Debathification went too far. He recognizes that. He blames it on the Iraqis who were given control of the Debathification Commission. Well, who delegated this to them? A, a, a man named L. Paul Bremer III, uh, who then you know, said, it's not my business, let them go ahead with it. The biggest mistake of all, aside from the decision to intervene, which I believe was a mistake that will be viewed as simply monumental in American in the history of American global engagement, and I could explain why for a number of reasons. The biggest mistake after the war was to have an American occupation of Iraq. This is a deeply proud and nationalistic country. They don't trust us. They don't trust our motives. And so in the context of these other things, when we let this looting go on and the infrastructure of the country be ravaged in the immediate aftermath of the war, we uh, purged the existing elite of the country in a very wide swath. We dissolved the Iraqi army, and then we said, we're going to rule here uh, as an occupation that is recognized by the UN Security Council, and at the time it was of an indefinite duration. It was the perfect storm for an insurgency. would have been much better to go the route of Afghanistan, as we did there, call in partnership with the international community, an Afghan National Conference or Loya Jirga, bring all the groups together, have them constitute an Iraqi interim government. To conclude on what we do now, part of our problem has been our go-it-alone attitude in Iraq from the very beginning preceding the war. And the extent to which even now, um, with the noble effort, I repeat, that Ambassador Khalilzad is making, it's largely him and the Americans. We cannot, on our own, in my opinion, mediate the bargains and achieve the greater political inclusion and compromise that is needed to turn this frightful situation away from the path of slide to all-out civil war that it is clearly on now. Uh, my view, this is the conclusion of that article that I mentioned to you, and it's the very same argument I made when my book was published about six months ago. Um, we need an international effort at mediation now that would involve the United Nations, the European Union, the Arab League, partnering with uh, the United States in trying to mediate a grand bargain, twist arms of these various actors, get them to make concessions, put everything on the table in terms of economic uh, and military support, and let them know that um, nobody's going to gain from civil war except the extremists. Thank you very much. We're going to follow the Cusin style of questions. So we're going to take three questions working around this side, short questions. I think you must have misunderstood Ambassador Bremer, because I cannot imagine him ever saying it would be a good thing to have more violence. Um, huh? He did say it. I mean, basically, he said the best thing could happen for these groups just to continue to kill each other and eliminate Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Well, all right. The uh, first question is, why did Ambassador, say, Ambassador Bremer say, or at least it's been 
represented here that he said uh, when it was warned that there would be greater and greater violence, he basically apparently said, bring it on, I hope so, uh, let him fight it out. Presumably the implication was that, you know, at this point one side's got to win. There is this view in Washington. I would say it's mainly associated with a certain circle of neoconservative thinkers who believed strongly that we had to go to war in the first place, not all the neoconservatives, but some of them, uh, that at this point, um, you know, the Sunnis need to be crushed, frankly, uh, and we should just unleash the Shia and let them do it. Uh, now, I think this is a morally uh, utterly unacceptable and politically incredibly myopic uh, view. I have heard this view. I think it's shocking at every level. Um, morally, oh yeah, let's just watch while mass murder and ethnic cleansing happens. I mean, one way to solve the problem would be to kill every Sunni, sure. Uh, that's one way to uh, extinguish the problem. Uh, but, you know, this would not be the first time in history that people went down that route to try and pursue a final solution. Now, I'm not saying that's what they're thinking. Uh, I'm not saying that's what they're proposing. But I am saying that that kind of logic can lead in that direction toward truly horrific violence. It's unacceptable. Secondly, it's unacceptable because it isn't going to stop there. You think the neighboring Arab Sunni states are just going to sit around and watch the Shia, who eventually will mobilize greater power. It's taking them time, but they're in the process of doing it. And the balance of power is starting to shift in Iraq now as the Shia get control of the state apparatus, heavily funded and armed by the United States, and oh, by the way, Iran as well. Now ponder that for a minute. The Islamic Republic of Iran and the United States supporting the same actors in Iraq. That's interesting. Um, eventually, the balance of power will shift. Uh, but you think Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Syria are going to simply watch by uh, as their Sunni brethren are reduced to, uh, you know, defeat and subjugation? Said that. I didn't. <laughs> I know, but I had to pretend that you were him in order to get worked up. Um, on the political side, I thank you for raising the question. On the political side, it's just uh, myopic and short-sighted for the reasons I've described. It's not going to end there. It's going to end in an all-out regional civil war that will be um, really, I think, um, terrifyingly destabilizing for the region, the flows of oil, the state of Israel, um, every moral and geostrategic interest we have in the region. The second question is, why don't we just promote the rule of law rather than being so obsessed with democracy as a political system? Uh, presumably you mean in the region, maybe more broadly as well. Uh, and my view on this is complicated. Um, so now I'll have to uncomplicate it given the time constraints. I think that um, we're not going to get to real sustainable constitutional and liberal democracy in most of the Arab countries of the region right away. We're certainly not going to get there by military imposition and occupation. So yes, I think that right now in Iraq, stabilization involves rule of law, power sharing, 
uh, political pluralism. Uh, democracy is a word, I think, that you know, of limited meaning and value in this context now. Um, elsewhere in the region, as in Egypt and so on, I think if we want sustainable democracy, we have to start with rule of law reforms. And I can tell you in Egypt, the two crucial ones now are an independent judiciary and a free press. And this is what Egyptian liberals are struggling for. They know if you just have open and, and fair elections now, in a certain sense they won't be fair because who are the people who are best organized uh, to take advantage of a political opening? They're the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, liberals and moderates need time to advocate their views, to organize, to form links with various social constituencies and so on. So in the near term, if you could get an independent judiciary and a truly open and free press and real freedom for civil society to organize, I think these are the near-term steps that we have to push for in many of these countries. Take two questions here. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, let me go to the second question first. Would it, would it have been morally wrong to stand by and have Saddam Hussein using genocide against his own people? Let me say uh, why I oppose going to war in Iraq. Um, I think the moral case for doing it was strong. But I think there's a very strong moral case for invading and overthrowing the North Korean regime. And I will tell you that the degree of depravity, subjugation, starvation, and human suffering in North Korea today is far worse even than what it has been under Saddam's brutal and tyrannical rule. And there's no question that Saddam is, you know, one of the great tyrants of the last 50 years. There have been periods of, yes, I'd say genocidal or nearly genocidal violence in Iraq. But Iraq in 2003 was not in the midst of active large-scale mass killing. It was a terrible dictatorship, but it wasn't the only one in the world. Um, one could cite Burma, North Korea, frankly, Saudi Arabia, a lot of others. Now, finally, uh, there's active genocide going on now in Darfur. Read uh, Nicholas Kristof's columns. And uh, how much would it take for the United States of America to organize 10,000 NATO troops to go down there and not stop all the violence, just stop these Arab militias from going into camps and murdering people and raping women with absolutely no resistance? It's a sad thing. It's a sad thing that Europe can't do it on its own, but I think Europe would do it as a NATO bridging force in partnership with the United States. Uh, but I don't think Europe would do it on its own, and it's also the case that we have, to a unique degree that needs to be confronted in the world, the airlift capacity and the logistical capacity to move troops there quickly. In any case, I realize we're not talking about uh, Darfur today, but if you want to make the moral case for military intervention, I can cite to you in purely moral terms uh, instances where I think the intervention would, be, would have been in March of 2003 in terms of the number of lives we could save predictably uh, more compelling than uh, Iraq. Now, um, why don't we just pull out now? Is what would happen? That Is that an option? Yeah, it's an option, but it's an option that would result... I'm sorry, is it a viable option? 
<laughs> no, in my opinion, it's not. Uh, of course, it's an option. But the problem is um, that it would lead, I think, almost immediately into a descent into large-scale mass killing. And here I recommend um, much larger scale than now. In other words, civil war as people conceptualize it in their minds, not in the technical political science terms. And here I recommend to you Lawrence Kaplan's really brilliant piece in the New Republic about two weeks ago. Again, the cover story based on his recent trip to Iraq where he came back and concluded just this. We're going to have to stay there for quite some time and probably more or less with the level of troops we have now. I don't even think we can contemplate a drawdown of American troops in the next few months because we are the ones literally with our fingers in the dice. Our Chairman Pat Patterson has a question. Who else has a question? Uh, I've been following with interest the Saddam Hussein trial and I can't make a bit of sense out of it. I, I can't see where it's going. Uh, so my question would be, what will be the most likely outcome and does it matter? Question back here. Yes, sir. Should, should we be con uh, contacting our congressman about this and what would you say a good approach would be to, when we contact our congressman? And one other right over here. My question is, is can, you, can you imagine a strategy in which the United States could form a coalition with other countries and in the, in the Middle East and in Europe, considering how ostracized they are Okay. On um, the first question about the Saddam trial, I will be glad to uh, take any bets with anyone uh, in this room who wants to wager them on uh, what the outcome of this trial will be. My bet is this man is going to hang from the gallows. Uh, and I think that's just fine. Um, <laughs> This man is responsible for large-scale um, murder. Uh, he ruined his country. He invaded another country. Of anybody in the world, well, you know, I'd say if you were to choose five people in the world who deserve the death penalty for, you know, their large-scale uh, humanitarian crimes, he would certainly be one of them. Uh, so the trial has not been efficient. It's not been well run. Uh, it's not been pretty to watch. Uh, they should have shut him up in a glass booth a long time ago, in my opinion, uh, and given him the opportunity to speak only when spoken to. Uh, but nevertheless, um, it is going to result in his conviction and hanging, and I think that there will be, uh, so long as the process is seen as having some degree of fairness and transparency, uh, the result will, I think, not push the Sunnis over the edge They've got too many other issues on the burner now, and um, it will give a great feeling of justice to the Shia and, and the Kurds, uh, whom he has oppressed so badly, as well as many Sunnis. What should you say to your member of Congress uh, if you write to them? I'd say, um, uh, well, first of all, uh, that you know, immediate pullout is going to be a very dangerous and destabilizing thing. But in addition to that, I think there are some things we should be doing that we have not been doing. And um, one of them is I think the United States should make a clear un and unequivocal declaration. I said this in my book. I said this uh, in my memo to my former colleague Condoleezza Rice uh, after I left in April of 2004. We should sheer clearly and unequivocally state to the Iraqi people that we are not seeking permanent military bases. 
I think that this, in combination with other things, would create a climate where Europe, the United States, the Arab League, uh, the EU, um, uh, the UN, you know, as a kind of collegial negotiating force, could begin to reach out to different elements of the insurgency and wind down this violence. There are a lot of motivations for the insurgency, and now it's getting ever more complicated as a result of this sectarian tit-for-tat killing. But some of the elements of the insurgency still fight uh, to what, in, in what they see to be a sort of anti-imperial campaign against a long-term American military occupation. So I think that this is so easy for us to do. It just requires a clear statement from the President of the United States. It mystifies me as to why we haven't done this, particularly since Khalilzad has said it and other people have said it, but it lacks credibility unless it comes from the highest office. I also think that we need, uh, in these negotiations that need to happen, to begin to define a time frame for American military withdrawal. Not a fixed timetable, but some sort of imagined time frame by which we would begin to draw down that would be tied to um, aspects uh, of the security situation on the ground so that then we could go back to different elements of the Sunni community and elsewhere and say, you said you want us to leave, you want us to leave. Well, you know, we're prepared to leave, but we agree we can only leave when the security situation improves in these predefined ways. So you work with us to achieve these security targets, and then we will um, withdraw according to these, this, this ideal time schedule. I think it's going to have to stretch out over several years. I wouldn't be the least surprised uh, if American troops are still there in significant numbers when Americans vote in the 2008 elections. There was one more question. Well, what was the last one? How, how would you build the coalition? Oh, well, I think I've already alluded to that. We basically need to reach out to these different groups and ask them to join us in a joint mediating effort for the um, political situation there now. I think they're not going to send troops. What we need is their political assistance. Robert, you had a question? Yeah. Um, regarding the insurgency, to what extent are they foreign uh, elements, foreign individuals, and where do they come from? Mohammed? We tried to reach out and get the people in the region to, to work towards political reconciliation and national compact. It was an abysmal failure because of security and other groups. I'd like to hear your comment about that previous attempt and why you think that a new one might produce a different result. Lynn? Uh, yeah, I'd like to get your comment on general side. Dick, have you changed your name to Lynn Minna? <laughs> <laughs> Lynn. Lynn. Then Dick. Lynn. We'll get you next, Dick. Dick, go ahead real quick right now. What's your question? Got, what are your comments on uh, George Assange's book, Saddam Hussein's Secrets, and which he, he definitely differs with your opinion? How? I haven't seen the book. How does he differ? Well, first of all, the weapons of mass destruction were shipped out in 02 when that Iraqi dam, uh, when the Syrian dam <coughs> broke. And they were sent out on uh, Boeing planes and trucks uh, all right, where are the insurgents from? Um, first of all, 
talking about the Sunni-based insurgency that's been waging this terrorizing campaign of destabilization and fighting the American occupation. It has been, at least until recently, uh, overwhelmingly Sunni insurgency. Uh, it's been estimated by American military and intelligence sources that approximately 90% of the fighters have been from inside Iraq. Uh, the problem is that the 10% from outside, and they're coming from all over uh, the Middle East, and even in some cases from Muslim communities in Europe, the problem is that uh, the 10% from outside are doing a disproportionate share of the murder and terror with the suicide bombings. So most of the suicide bombings, it appears, have been organized by Al-Qaeda in Iraq or other international Islamist groups that are bringing in suicide bombers from the outside. Um, yes, the previous attempt at a compact across ethnic and sectarian lines was not terribly successful um, but you know it did produce some agreements like the interim constitution, the political transition plan and the um, you know the process so far as it's gone now. I think at key points we have uh, gotten political compromises and um, we need to try to mobilize more leverage and more clever diplomacy with the key points uh, of influence in these communities in order to pull groups back from a more maximal type of position toward greater accommodation. And here I think Ayatollah Sistani remains for the Shia an enormously important and influential figure. And one of the problems is that Ayatollah Sistani does not talk to the United States. One reason why we need international mediation as we did, and I talk about it in my book, to solve another political deadlock early in 2004 is so that we can get some partners in this mediation process to talk directly to Ayatollah Sistani. He has the only, he's the only one, I think, who can force Skiri to compromise, for example, on the federalism question. The reason why I do not favor a division of the country into three pieces is mainly because I do not think it could happen without the civil war that I'm warning the country is heading to. Uh, how would the oil wealth of the country be divided? What would happen to groups, and they're not small in number, who live, you know, who are from one, you know, who are from a section of the country dominated by one group but live in another section of the country? Sunnis, for example, living in Basra. Uh, they would be alarmed at this. You'd have even larger scale population transfers. Uh, I just think um, this is a formula, you know, to propose to do this uh, for much larger scale, uh, more familiar type of civil war. Uh, and so I think that Iraqis are, if they want peace, they're condemned to try and find a way to live together, at least in a loose federation or confederation that would provide a credible guaranteed framework for um, peaceful coexistence and division and sharing of the oil and gas wealth of the country. Finally, I have not read Assad's book. Uh, let me say two things. Number one, I do not disrespect people who felt that we needed to go to war uh, to remove Saddam Hussein. 
What I feel, I, I think it was a mistake, and I think we're going to look back on it as a terrible mistake. But what I feel with such passion, I mean, if I really felt that way, I might not have gone out there. What I feel with such passion is that if one believed that this was of overriding importance to the national security of the United States, and that would have been the only justification for doing it, then you had a political and moral responsibility to the American people, whose security you were pr protecting, and to the Iraqis, of course, in the region, uh, to do it right, to prepare properly, to put in adequate resources, uh, to seek and use the best intelligence, to have a political plan for the post-transition period, and the utter incompetence, arrogance, uh, ignorance, isolation from reality with which this war was prepared and which, with which this post-war was implemented, uh, I think uh, has been um, an unforgivable uh, and inexcusable, tragic uh, diminution of our national security. So if you felt we needed to do it, uh, then it should have been done properly. And on that strong concluding note, thank you very much for For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.